In our first study at noon yesterday, we looked at God's purpose in marriage, which is to strengthen us to resist temptation to evil and to reproduce godly families all over the earth. Now, this is done by biological children and by our evangelistic children. You remember, Paul called those uh, that he had brought in his children in the Lord. And God wants us, as husbands and wives, and even in dating, he wants us to be able to do what we couldn't do by ourselves. In our study last night, we looked at two broad topics. The first is how God guides and what it means to follow Christ. This goes from desire to choice. If anyone, Jesus says, desires to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We deny ourselves the pleasure of sin and take up the pain of duty. Let me share a quote that may help us understand this better. Adventist uh, Acts of the Apostles 565. The reason many in this age of the world make no greater advancement in the divine life is because, you want to read it with me? They interpret the will of God to be just what they will to do. Why don't they advance? They think that what they want to do is clearly what God wants them to do. Sometimes, if I would tell my children when they were young that they shouldn't do something, they would say, oh, mother doesn't care. Or if mother told them to do something, guess what they'd say? Oh, daddy doesn't care. When in fact, they had never bothered to ask either daddy or mother. Because they wanted it to, to do it, so you know, certainly I wouldn't care. Or they wanted to do it, certainly mother wouldn't care. Now notice the next uh, sentence. While following their own desires, they flatter themselves that they are conforming to God's will. You see, in the choice of a life's partner, even in how we conduct our dating practices, there are many, many people who think that if they want that person, it must be God's will for them. These have no, what does it say? Conflicts with self. There are others, so there are two groups, there are others who for a time are successful in the struggle against their selfish desires for pleasure and ease. I remember friends of mine in medical school years ago, and they were earnest Christians, but today they don't attend church. For a time they are successful in the struggle against their selfish desire for pleasure and ease. They are sincere and earnest but grow weary of protracted effort, of daily death, of ceaseless toil. Indolence seems inviting, death to self repulsive. So they discover the gospel and a grace. It doesn't, doesn't take all this. Yeah, that's what they say. They close their drowsy eyes and fall under the power of temptation instead of what? Resisting it. You see, the first group don't deny themselves 
even though they profess to be following Christ. The second group don't take up the cross daily and continue to follow Jesus. The last, the last point last evening then was the broad topic of God's ideal in dating. His plan was revealed in Eden. Before marriage, there were three requirements. One was to be able to support a family. And then the second one was self-control had to be acquired. And then the third one was there needed to be a period of sleep. Deep sleep in the case of Adam. And we remember that the, guy, the Bible uses sleep to illustrate complete trust in God. That's God's ideal for a courtship. When we're able to support a family, we have self-control, not only a throttle that breaks, and we have total trust in God. Now we continue our study this morning because we'd like to look at predictors of success in marriage. But let's pray. Dear Father, who of us is sufficient for the task we have? Sharing Christ and his desire for us in our dating and in our courtship and in our marriage and in our singleness. We wouldn't understand an angel. And an angel wouldn't really understand us. Jesus alone must speak to us this morning. We ask that he come here through the power of his Holy Spirit, infilling us, that his word may live, breathe, come as a new revelation, newly bathed in power. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Love is expensive. In 2005, CNN reported the average cost of a wedding was nearly $30,000. That is more than three semesters of private college. That's nearly one year of medical school. And if the price of gas continues to climb, that will be a tank for an SUV. Before making that kind of investment, you ought to know how marriage is going to turn out because it, it turns out that hatred is even more expensive. In 2004, John Crouch, divorce attorney, estimated that a contested divorce with a child custody battle costs 40000 or more. Are there any reliable ways to predict whether this investment in marriage is going to turn out to be a good investment or a bad investment, a happy one or a miserable one. You don't have to go to the Witch of Endor. You don't need a crystal ball. You don't have to look at astrological tables or read your horoscope in the newspaper every day. You don't need a palm reader because the Bible gives us two reliable ways to predict the future. Our future. The first is found in Galatians 6-7. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
See, God has made it possible for us to peer into our future. We only need to recognize the seed we've sown to know the crop we're going to reap. And if we have studied the life history of the seed, we can know how many steps before the crop is harvested. If corn is planted in a field, the farmer knows with absolute certainty that only corn will grow from the seeds that he planted. And depending on the variety and certain conditions, if it's a very short, fast variety, he knows that he'll have a crop of corn in 80 days. If it's a long variety, he knows that he'll have a crop of corn up to 140 days. And he can plan his life because he can predict that future. And day by day, as he works with the soil, cultivating the seeds, putting on the fertilizer, killing the bugs, watering the roots, he can know what the results will be as he weeds as well. And the knowledgeable farmer, as he watches the season unfold with drought, perhaps, or flood, perhaps, or infestations of pests, can know with certainty the effect these will have on the yield. Or even if there will be a harvest at all. But he can know for certain when he plants a corn seed that only corn will grow from that seed. And if he wants to harvest apples, he must plant apple seeds. He can decide what he wants to harvest and then plant what he wants to harvest. It's never guesswork. It's completely reliable. And there's another glimpse of the future that's given in the Bible. It's similar, but it's not identical. This is found in Ecclesiastes 1.9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. Our past is the best predictor of our future. This is the basic rationale that God gives for who is saved and who is lost and what assignments are given to the saved in heaven. Luke 16:10, he that is faithful in that which is what? least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. You see, God tells you what your future is and tells heaven what your future is. But you do too. If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, verse 12 of Luke 16, who shall give you that which is your own? It is this biblical pr uh, principle, sowing and reaping, and the past tells the future that must form the basis of our decision-making in courtship, in dating, and in marriage. Without this, you have no guidance whatsoever. Choosing this person or that person is just throwing the dice. You're guessing, hoping for the best. Scary thought. How is it that Loma Linda University 
selects students for dentistry or for nursing or physical therapy? What do they do? They evaluate the past. This is a principle of life. Do you want to peer into your future? Honestly review your past. Not your peaks of bad or your peaks of good, but what's the trend of the life? Do you want to peer into your lover's future? Carefully investigate his or her past. This is not a look at the past week or even the past month. Those of you who have led out in such things as five-day plans or a CHIP program know that a person can make decisions that are good decisions for a, a month. But what will the decisions be in a year? We're talking here about an extended look at the past life. You see, we can know with certainty our future by our past and our present choices. This forms the basis for all true courtship and dating counseling. These verses should be solemnizing for us. Notice this in Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2, page 599. Repeated acts in a given course become what? Habits. These may be modified by, what are the next two words? Severe training in afterlife, but are, what are the next two words? Seldom changed. Once formed, habits become more and more firmly impressed upon the character. Few there be that find it. Few will go through the severe training that God calls for to enter into life. Straights the gate. Many are called, few are chosen. See, this is why we can accurately predict the future. Notice uh, Messages to Young People 450. That wonderful section on courtship. Let the woman who desires a peaceful, happy union, who would escape future misery and sorrow. Who's this addressing? Someone who wants a future, happy marriage, right? Evidently, there is a way for a young lady to look into the future. There's a way to know whether there's going to be a peaceful, happy marriage ahead that she can enjoy or a miserable, sorrow-fulfilled union to endure. And this is going to be instruction for those who'd like a happy union. This instruction isn't for the heedless and thoughtless. This is, instruction isn't for those who need a good fight now and then to be happy. No, these are directions only for those who desire a peaceful and happy married life. Anyone else, just turn your hearing aid off. What are the directions? Notice the important next word. What is it? Inquire. Inquire. Inquire is the word that the Bible uses for judges. And in this process, you're a judge. You're going to have to make a judgment call. The Old Testament helps us understand Christ's instruction on not judging. The Bible does not say you are never to be a judge. 
In fact, judges were appointed in the Old Testament. And they were called for in the New Testament churches. It's a very sacred office with very strict instruction. Bad judgments and bad judges were condemned. In the Old Testament, these evil judges were unsparingly attacked by the prophets. And Christ uses the evil judges of the Old Testament as an illustration of evil judges in every age. Any who condemn and slander the righteous, those are evil judges. He reminded his hearers that the Old Testament judge himself was judged. When we become a judge, we then set ourselves up to be judged by a higher judge when our case is appealed. Neither the Old Testament, Christ, or the New Testament condemned the legitimate office of judge. Because we are all judges of certain matters, and God has given us a certain jurisdiction. Jesus tells us the same words that the Old Testament judges were charged with. John 7, 24, he said, Judge not according to appearances, but what? Judge righteous judgment. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world, and if the world shall be judged by you, are you not unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one who shall be able to judge between his brethren? And again, Paul declares, 1 Corinthians 10, 15, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. And while dating, we are very much to be judges. That doesn't mean we're to be critical or condemnatory, but we are to make a ruling as to whether this person is the right person for us. And in the Bible, very specific instruction is given to judges. We need to study this instruction carefully. I'm only going to look at one sentence for one aspect. Deuteronomy 13, 14. This is from the New English translation. You must investigate thoroughly and inquire carefully. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. There are questions that must be asked. There is an investigation that must be performed to determine future harmony and happiness in a marriage. Do you want a peaceful, happy union? Then there is a skill you must master. You must know how to inquire, how to investigate, and that means you must know what questions to ask, how to ask the questions, when to be direct, when to be indirect, when to ask each question, and who to ask. How to recognize the marks of a deceitful answer, a partial answer, a superficial answer. And if we are absolutely committed to God, he will guide us in all this, protecting us and saving us from great uh, blunders. Because after all, he is the judge and he wants to help us. And then the next 
phrase is, before she yields her affections. You see, the court must sit, the judge must rule on the case before the affections are yielded. There's a timing to our inquiry. It's not enough to ask the question. He has made everything beautiful, the, uh, the wise man said, in its time. There's a proper timing, a sequence in question asking, information gathering. These questions must be asked before love is involved, before any affection is yielded, before the heart is taken. Why? Because you will pay no attention to the answers. Refuse to accept or follow the answers if you've already yielded your heart's affections. You've already made a judgment call prematurely. He that decideth the matter before he heareth it is unwise. And then if you do this investigation after you're married, too late. You see, the thoughtful, knowledgeable Christian will not just casually date for entertainment. To keep from being lonely, to hope that he or she will somehow find someone who is compatible. No. Careful inquiry must precede any steps toward marriage. The inquiry phase must precede any acceptance of tokens of either specialness or exclusiveness. This step of inquiry takes more than a moment, a date, or a weekend. In the best studies, 2.4 years on average. But however long it takes, if we want a happy marriage, we will make certain of the answers before moving on in the next step in courtship. Now here's some questions that in this letter to this woman were recommended. Has my lover a mother? Well, what's the answer to that? Your investigation is going well so far. Some questions are easy to answer. Even orphans have mothers. Even if a child cannot recall ever seeing his mother, the mother's influence, even if brief, limited to the prenatal time, is very powerful. If the answer to that is yes, there's a follow-up question. What is the stamp of her character? How is it seen on this person? The Bible says that the childhood is an accurate predictor of the future and should be considered. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And the converse is true. Train up a child in the way he shouldn't go. And when he is old, he won't depart from it. Notice how important this influence is on the future of the child. The thoughts and feelings of the mother will have a powerful influence upon the legacy she gives her child. This is Adventist Home 241. If she allows her mind to dwell upon her own feelings, if she indulges in selfishness, if she is peevish and exacting, the disposition of her child will testify to the fact. This is testimony in court. Thus, 
many have received as a birthright almost unconquerable tendencies to evil. I'm glad the word almost is there. The enemy of souls understands this matter much better than do many parents. You see, he understands how predictive this is. He understands the seed and harvest principle. He knows the details of the plant. He knows when to plant the seed. And so he brings his temptation to bear upon the mother, knowing that if she does not resist him, he can, through her, do what? Affect her child. Other questions. Does he recognize his obligations to her? As a son, he is to honor his mother. In the absence of his father, he is to support his mother. I read a very profoundly convicting statement to me just last week. Parents are entitled to the love of their children. This is Manuscript Releases, volume 18, page 310. Parents are entitled to the love of their children, and if the children would manifest more affection in words and acts, it would be a blessing to both. Jesus wants to bless everyone, doesn't he? And this is how. Every kind of attention is appreciated by parents. As a parent, I can say that's true. Before a marriage contract is made, every young person should look carefully to see how his or her absence from the home would affect the happiness of the parents. Drop jaw here. It should have been obvious to me, but it wasn't. That's just the fifth commandment. But we are a generation that don't follow any of the commandments, let alone the fifth. Do they, in their feebleness, need the help you alone can give them? Think carefully in regard to who has the strongest claims upon you. Is he mindful of her wishes and happiness? If he does not respect and honor his mother, will he manifest respect and love kindness and attention toward his wife. What's the best predictor of the future? Past. The thing that has been is that which shall be. These questions, you see, recognize this truth. The special affection the Bible shows between Isaac and his mother Sarah tells us of the quality of husband Isaac would be and the happiness that could be expected. The lack of thoughtfulness and respect and kindness and attention to Rebecca warns us that Esau would make a very poor husband. In each case, what you know from this information was sufficient to predict entirely these men's future homes. Isaac was a good husband. Esau was not. Do you want a happy home? Find out if the man you think you would like to love is deferential toward his mother. Does he seek to care for her, or does he expect her to care for him? Is she feeble? Does he provide care for her? Or does he put his desires, his plans, his goals over her needs? Does he plan to care for her in the future when she does become feeble, if she's strong now? Does he remember her birthday? 
Is he grateful for her care or is he critical of her? Does he call her and let her know his plans? These are the kinds of questions that must be asked before yielding any affections or you are gambling with your future happiness and the odds are stacked against you. We can know the fruit we will reap tomorrow by the seed we plant today and the seed we planted yesterday and the care we give the plants. The plants can produce noxious and harmful weeds and the harvest will be in kind. Hosea 8, 7, For they have sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. Or the seeds we plant can be good, producing beautiful and valuable crops. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Luke 6, 38, With the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. Seed planted, fruit harvested, is documentable in the garden. But it is documentable in courtship and marriage. And if there was ever a time that you do not want to sow wild oats, it's during dating and early marriage. The unvarying law of the harvest. Three, we reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. We reap later than we sow. Do you want to know the future? Do you want to be able to determine whether a marriage will be happy? Do you want to be a wise counselor? Learn to recognize and identify the various seeds. Then you can know the harvest. Olive seeds produce more olives. You're already predictors. Watermelon seeds produce... Watermelon. Greed produces greed. Anger produces more anger. Moral impurity produces moral impurity. Sin produces sin. Righteousness produces righteousness. One is a way of death. The other is a way of peace, joy, contentment, eternal life. And we want to study seed a bit more closely. Jesus told two parables about seeds. One parable tells of good planted by a wise farmer. The other parable tells of bad seed planted by an enemy. Each kind of seed produced its particular harvest after its kind. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that the good seed was what? God's word, his truth. In the parable of the tares, the seeds came from the de devil, his deceptive words, his ideas, his plans. You see, words are seeds. And we plant them every time we do what? Open our mouths. What am I doing right now? Planting seed. Words we say to others are seeds sown broadcast like the dandelions in the wind. When we speak, we are the sowers. The words we speak determine the harvest we will reap. When God made the world, how did he do it? He spoke. Everything God created has speech recognition. It responds to the voice of 
God. And when God speaks, what happens? Good things. Because of the power of his word, God is very, very careful what he says. I was on a committee with Mark Finley several weeks ago. And one of the members asked a question. And Mark was very, Pastor Finley was very, very careful in how he answered. And he prefaced his remarks by saying, I have learned that what I say is repeated. So let me say it in this way, is how he said it. And God knows he will be quoted. And he only speaks the truth, and he does it very, very carefully. Now, we're made in his image. When we speak, things happen. James 3, 4 through 6. Take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong words, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. You see, when we speak, things happen. Good things, bad things. We are planting a crop in courtship and early marriage that we will reap in kind in future. No wonder Peter said if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. 1 Peter 4.11. When Isaiah's tongue was sanctified by heaven's coals, he became a power for future good. He started planting what? Good seed. When the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, it was to touch what part of the body? The tongues of the believers, their speech changed. The seeds they planted changed, and the world was changed. Believe me that the seeds we plant in courtship and early marriage are perennials. They have long-term and predictable consequences. Revengeful words are like implanting a long-acting poison dispenser. And they'll keep... Harvesting those over and over. Words never forgotten. Words we say not only react on others, but they have an even greater reaction on us. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Now notice what the next phrase is. Is not the word that we told you in Egypt, is not this the word? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, 
for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. You see, their own words spoken more than how long before? A year. We're now coming right. Those words of doubt, those faithless words, were now producing a harvest in kind. They were reaping what they had sown. They were going to prove their original words were right. You see, we have that in us. The words you say not only are perennials in the one you date and marry, but they're perennials in your own life. When I saw this just two or three weeks ago, I said, God, cleanse me from my own words. There's weeds. Words that I have spoken, lack of faith. Lord, kill that seed, uproot the weed. But you see, it's not only words that we speak to others, but words we think and say to ourselves. How do we plant seeds? By words. Words we say, words we think and say to ourselves. The first plant is open, but the second planting is secret. Last week, Monday, the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me occurred. I was doing surgery there, skin surgery, and uh, my wife must have been praying for me. And suddenly, the presence of God just was there. I was earnestly praying that the Lord would protect the patient from my hands. <laughs> and, um, and suddenly, while I was cutting and cauterizing and sewing, songs and thoughts of God just flooded over me. This is happening not at church, but at, at work. I thought, is this what heaven's like? Never had anything like it before. Is this what it's like to work with Christ? I didn't ever want it to end. I felt a reverent, holy solemnity. But the nurse and the patient, they were right with me. They had no idea. They just saw I was quieter than usual. Good thing. These were deeply hidden in my heart. You don't know what the person next to you is thinking, even right now. What thoughts are they planting? As the Word of God is spoken, they may be planting thoughts of hate or rejection or acceptance, welcoming God. Don't know. No wonder David said, let the words of my mouth, but the meditations of my heart, both be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength. He was conscious of his weakness. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The words we write also are seeds we plant and will read. We write on email, on our blogs. Words we hear. Words we feel. Words we choose to live by. These, in fact, are the most important seeds of our life. The words that is the seeds we choose determine absolutely our future. It's not some strange, mysterious secret what you'll be like in 20 years. You'll be exactly what you planted and cultivated. 
We choose our future. The disciples were surprised at Judas' treachery, but they shouldn't have been. Jesus wasn't surprised. He gave sufficient clues to alert them to the plants growing in Judas' life. If they would have been spiritual botanists, they would have understood. Judas himself gave all the clues necessary. They should have recognized it. Evil, disobedience to God's law in all of its myriad forms produces its harvest. More sin, like sin, unhappiness, and death. But the good news is that these predictors can also help us. Knowing what we have planted, we can start weeding. Not just lopping off the tops, but digging up the roots, burning them. And if we confess, he will forgive and cleanse. And the past doesn't have to be our predictor. It can be our monitor, helping us not to go back that way again. We can say, Lord, I will take the severe training necessary. I want to be a different man and a different woman. I don't like my past. I want your future. Matthew 1 gives us a wonderful hope for every life. There are only three women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. One was a harlot, Rahab. But she changed her past. And God gave her a wonderful husband and a future hope. She became one of the mothers of Israel, one of the mothers of Jesus. And then there was Ruth. Her past, drunken, incestuous ancestors. But she left all that. She joined herself to God's people. And she was changed, thoroughly changed. And God gave her Boaz. And David. And Jesus. Took earnest work. It takes time. But God is able to weed our gardens and give us new plants and new hope. What harvest do you want to reap in 20 years? That's the seed you must sow now. What kind of marriage do you want in 20 years? You must know what seeds are being planted and cultivated now. What words are you saying? Are they kind? Are they faith-building? Are they critical? Are they sour? Are they complaining and murmuring? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Say it with me. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Will you bow your head? I've been deeply convicted of the seeds that I don't like that I've planted. Have you been convicted too? You want new seeds? Living seeds? Seeds that don't have to be pulled up by the roots but can be harvested by Jesus and taken to heaven. Is that what you want? 
Will you tell God that? Recesses of your mind. Lord, you know what's going on. Even now, we're all planting seed by our response to your appeals. And we'll reap the harvest. Oh, Lord, I want to reap a harvest that's good fruit. Seeds not from me, but from you. And others want the same thing. I pray that you'll honor your word. Soften the soil so that you can plant a lot more of your seed. Crowding out the weed seeds that we've for too long allowed to take root. Oh, dear Jesus, transform us even now. That we can say when you come, behold, I and the wife and the children that the Lord has given. Happy families, godly families, producing godliness in this dark world. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. In Christ's name.